Hello, my friends. Welcome to The Greg Crino Show. In today's episode, we have my great friend, Ted Vogt. Ted is an Air Force veteran. He was a lawyer and a state legislator in Arizona, and he is currently the head of Arizona's Department of Gaming. I absolutely love talking politics with this guy because he has so much knowledge and experience. We get into his time in the military and in politics. We then get into issues of free speech and social media along with the current election. And you also get to hear his wicked Donald Rumsfeld impression. It's so funny. I think you're really going to love this episode. So please welcome my great friend, Ted Vogt. All right, Ted Vogt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I bet. So uh, here we are sipping whiskey in, uh, in a beautiful Scottsdale afternoon. So, uh, yeah, man. Um, so how have you been? Been doing great. Uh, good. You know, like everybody else dealing with COVID. Uh, but things are go- going well right now. Uh, things are beautiful in Arizona. It's been a little bit hot summer, but uh, yeah. can't complain. I know. It was like 115 yesterday when I was riding my bike. Uh, my motorcycle, that is. Yes. And uh, I know. I've got to make people think that I'm tough. <laughs> but, yeah, we're coming down the hill, and it was like 70 up in the hills, and then you can just feel the oven just sinking down into the oven and i love phoenix but god dang i don't know how you guys do it it's been the hottest summer on record i think uh, previously the most days over 110 degrees or 110 degrees or higher was 34 and i think we're over 55 probably over 60 now yeah yeah and you guys don't get the rain either like in tucson you get the the virga and you get the rain and you get a little bit of a reprieve but here it's like God saying, oh, here's a little bit of rain. And I'm like, nope, sorry. It's, and you're just staring at it, and you're just like, it's too hot. Can't screw touch the you, <laughs> Lord Almighty. We, I, I, I don't, this year's monsoon was a disappointment. I don't think we got practically anything. God. Well, we'll get into climate change and all the other fun stuff here pretty soon. But anyway, um, so everybody who's listening, uh, Ted's uh, one of my best friends. Uh, we go way back to law school. Um, I've known him for about, oh gosh, it's been 13 years yeah. now. Yep, 2007. Yeah, so uh, you were a, let's see if I can get everything correct. Let's see if uh, a good friend can remember everything. Um, so you grew up in Utah. Correct. As a minority. Yes. As a White, straight man, but you were Catholic? No, you were Catholic? I, I was a Protestant who went through the Catholic school system okay. in a predominantly Mormon state. So, so a minority within a minority. Yes. Okay. Yes. We'll get into that later as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of uh, three one of three boys, um, you, let's see, you then went from Utah, you went to college at this terrible university, Yale? That. That's correct. That's correct. Okay, and you had a useless major of history, <laughs> and you. I want to keep going, man. You are painting a beautiful picture. Keep going. The the okay. accuracy is actually bringing tears. Which to my leads eyes. me to your first career, which was comedy. Oh sorry. no no no! See, oh, this sorry. Is, this is where it falls. Down. Okay, sorry. Yeah. What was your first one then? So my first job out of college was investment banking. Oh, okay. So, so you, you did something to, useful. Yeah, okay. exactly. I helped, uh, I helped others create wealth. I was uh, okay. an analyst at a uh, small investment bank and uh, did uh, mergers and acquisitions. And the, the uh, banking firm that I was with focused strate- just 
solely on uh, IT companies. And this was the mid-90s. So this was right when the internet was really taking off. Uh, so it was a it was a really interesting time to kind of be in that area. Where, where were you? Were you, in New, were you in New York at that time? So yeah, the, the bank that I was at was right uh, right in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I mean, literally right by uh, the George Washington Bridge. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I did that for a year. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, I, I mean, it was interesting. I probably never worked with such a smart group of people in my entire life. But uh, then uh, the following year, 1996, I decided I wanted to go work on a presidential campaign. And oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. that's where you got your first taste in politics. Yeah, that's okay. right. So I went and moved down to Washington, D.C. and started volunteering for the uh, Dole presidential campaign. So uh, really, really interesting. Uh, you know, Clinton was really coming back from sort of the, the nadir of his career down in 94 after he lost the midterm. So he was coming back, and, and there weren't a lot of people – uh, a lot of the tra traditional folks thought, hey, Dole's not going to win. Uh, so uh, I was able to get into a campaign where normally you usually have to know somebody. You have to uh, have kind of been around the political circles to kind of get involved. And, you know, I, I, I got in there. I got into the uh, policy shop. And uh, it was it was really great. I mean, when you're 23, 24 years old, uh, to be able to be involved in something like that. And how long were you in? You, did you enter the campaign during the general or during the yeah. primary? Right at the very tail end of the primary. So okay. I, I entered uh, around May of 96. Okay. And he had pretty much was the presumptive nominee okay. at that point and, and then right into the general. Okay. And then what was the feeling in, in the campaign at the time? Because you said people thought he was going to lose, but... Well, I was always the optimist, so I always well, thought I that That's there was a, like you know, I, I just knew there was going to be a way that we were going to pull this out and uh, that the Dole would win. And I, I, I did, uh, I had always sort of admired him, and I really, getting to work in that campaign, admired him even more. I thought Wasn't he, was he a World War II vet? World War II vet. Yes, he's like the greatest generation. Absolutely. He, uh, consummate know, patriot. Yeah. From Kansas, uh, got wounded, lost the uh, use of his arm, but I mean, came back from some real grievous injuries to go off, be, you know, become a lawyer, become a long-serving senator. He was uh, Gerald Ford's vice presidential candidate in 76, and then, you know, Senate ma majority leader, and uh, then quit that uh, to kind of show that he was all in uh, for the presidential campaign. That was one of the things is, you know, is he really going to run hard? He's, you know, the, the Senate majority leader, the first time that the uh, Republicans have been in charge of the Senate in, you know, a couple of decades, and, and the first time that both the House and the Senate were in Republican hands in, yeah. you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah, that uh, was but a good time. You know, kind of, I want to say it was probably February or March of 96 is where he decided he was going to uh, step down from the Senate and focus full-time on the uh, presidential race. Okay, yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was an interesting time. That was the first election where I could have voted. Mm -hmm. I was 21, and I kind of liked Clinton back then, but yeah. I was just like a young kid. I was in the military, and I thought Clinton seemed like a nice guy, and Dole just seemed kind of old and boring, and but yeah, you know, he he was going to be the bridge to the past to you know yeah. you know what what made America great. As a matter of fact, I think 
that was kind of the theme of his convention speech is like, let me be sort of the bridge uh, to sort of our, our fundamental values and, and yeah. all those sort of things. And I actually have to say uh, that Clinton, the Democrats' uh, convention came a couple weeks after the Republicans. Yeah. So, conven- so Clinton actually took sort of the, the theme that, uh, that uh, Dole was running on and said, you know, I'm going to be the bridge to the future. I'm going to be the bridge to the 21st century. So, you know, it, Clinton did a masterful job. Yeah. And he, he had the economy. Well, uh, you had 96. The economy was just cooking. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and I think that's just enough to sway that middle 5 to 10 percent. Um, I don't think you can sway people's ideology very much, but I think there is that 10% mm-hmm. that can be swayed. And, you know, in a booming economy, I think it's just tough for anybody to break in there. Well, as a matter of fact, the 96 uh, election was the last time uh, that Arizona had uh, gone for a Democrat. Yeah. And uh, prior to that, I, I think you'd probably have to go back to the, the 20s, the oh, last wow. time uh, Arizona voted for yeah. uh, a, a Democrat president. And I, that could change. We're kind of going right into politics. We're supposed to go you and then your job and then, but let me, let me just finish up about you and then, and then we'll, we'll get right into this just so I can give the folks like a more context. So you went from the Dole campaign, then, then when that was over, then you went with. Well, you, since there was no Dole administration to join, yeah. uh, I, I went home for a little while okay. uh, to Salt Lake City, uh, was a substitute teacher at my high school. And then. Uh, you were a teacher. Uh, yeah. yeah. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn, man. Spent about six months doing that at my old school. And uh, then I just, there had always been a, a part of me that I always loved comedy, wanted to try it. You know, I, one of my dreams had been I, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And uh, the place, sort of the, the farm team for Saturday Night Live comes out of Chicago, out of Second City. So, you know, I was back in Salt Lake, and then about May of uh, 97, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to pack up, I'm going to move to Chicago, I'll, I'll get a job somewhere, but I, I want to go to the second city, and, you know, they had sort of like a uh, improv training course, and then you can join like different, uh, fe- different improv uh, troops within the training center and kind of hone your skills. I mean, Chicago is improv central. I didn't know that. So yeah. is, is the second city, is that a a par- part of the city or is that a so the second city business? is a theater and, oh okay uh, chicago's known as sort of the second city okay new york's the first city chicago's the second city um and they willfully <laughs> take the submissive role. No, no, we're just number two no 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 but, they were like they would argue with you whether or not new york's better than chicago okay uh but uh the the second city theater actually grew out of an improv troupe uh, at the University of Chicago back in the, the late 50s. As a matter of fact, Joan Rivers was one of the founding members of that. She was a student down at University of Chicago, and they kind of had this experimental uh, theater troupe that eventually evolved into the Second City. Okay. And when you think about it, you know, John Belushi, uh, Dan Aykroyd, uh, even That's up right. to All those guys were from Tina Chicago. Fey, Rachel Dratch. As a matter of fact, when I was just starting out at Second City, uh, Tina Fey of 30 Rock fame and Rachel Dratch and Horatio Sands uh, were on the main stage, which is kind of like, you know, you're going to see them at Second City. So yeah. they were at the main stage, and that fall they got picked up for Saturday Night Live. Wow. And, and Seth Meyers was there. 
I was involved in a, uh, a troupe at a different theater called Improv Olympic, and one of the uh, members of my troupe uh, was Jordan Peele, who's done oh, yeah. Key and Key Peele. Oh, yeah, Those guys and, are hilarious. And, and some of the movies that he's done. So okay. he was actually in my troupe. So. Wait, Jordan Peele was in your... Yep. So you actually acted with him? Yep, yep. Oh, my God. What, so what was he like? Improv- or improv- I mean, yeah. he was... Uh, I mean, he was very young at that time and just brilliant. Like you just yeah. knew, like he. Which he one is he? Is he the tall dude or the short dude? Short dude. He's a short guy. Okay, yeah. so, he's the one that he does yeah. my favorite skit ever, the yeah. flight attendant skit. Have you yes. seen this one? Yes. They're, oh my god. The the other one is the uh, uh, the the football one. Uh, I've seen that one. Well, you'll have to check it out. But okay. but he's gone on and done like uh, Get Out and a yeah. lot of great movies. So okay. I, I mean, he's really just taken off like a rocket ship. Yeah. Oh, their their stuff is hilarious. Um, okay, so improv comedy, and then then things got then then you somehow found your way in the military, and I don't know how. Yeah, exactly. You so, made that jump. So now I almost have to kind of back up uh, okay. to the Dole campaign. While I was at the Dole campaign uh, and kind of moving around, I eventually ended up uh, being the uh, executive assistant uh, to Donald Rumsfeld, who at the time was uh, sort of the. Dole's sort of director of policy, and then he eventually became the chairman of the campaign. So Dole and Rumsfeld and Ford uh, were all congressmen together, and their offices were right next to each other. So they, you know, they had been friends for years and years and years. And uh, at uh, one point in the campaign, Dole asked uh, Rumsfeld if he would come and kind of help him out on some national security stuff and then kind of lead maybe the general policy effort and then eventually kind of moved into this national campaign role. So I just, through dumb happenstance, right time, right place, ended up uh, serving as sort of the executive assistant for Rumsfeld. I did sort of the scheduling and, you know, whatever needed to be done. And... uh, one day during the campaign, I had done something wrong, and uh, he called me into his office. <laughs> see, very for, folks, we're, I'm looking at an impression right now, Donald Rumsfeld, that you, I wish you could see, but Ted does the best <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld impression it's ever. It's because it's burned into my psyche. <laughs> right. I mean, he was, Do it. Do he, it he was very, I mean, he just kind of looked over his desk at me. He's got the eyes. And he was like, uh, he's like, Ted? have you ever considered going into the military? And I mean, this question was completely out of the blue. And I was like, no. And he's like, I think you should. I think it would do you some good. And that just stuck in my head. He got up, left, had to go. I think they were traveling to a campaign event. And that that exchange sort of... Uh, percolated in my brain for about four years. So this is 96. Yeah. So sort of a disciplinary action that he was taking because you had done something wrong and he says the military could do you some good. Yes. That's what I thought. Okay. And I have since gone back and asked him all these things. So that was 96 and I kept thinking about that exchange for years and years and years and then I finally around 2000 I was like, you know, I think that if I don't serve in the military, I'll regret it. I think it's an experience that I will that I will regret if I don't actually have it. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, you brought that up and you, you said that you think I should and you think it would do some good. And he's like, oh, well, I, I think military service is good in general. He's like, I think uh, the things you experience there, the leadership you get, uh, and the fact that you are serving your country, I mean, 
Where else can you do that? And he's like, and then on the flip side, if you know I'm in the, the chair, I'm getting ready to hire somebody, and I look at two candidates, and everything else is the same, but I see one person uh, that's in the military, having served in the military myself, I instantly know something about them. I know a little bit about their training. I know a little bit about what's been demanded of them. And so he's like, I think that is uh, an important dimension uh, that when I see it is very valuable to me. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I thought initially I was gonna go into the, the Navy. My brother had gone to the Merchant Marine Academy. He'd been in the Naval Reserves. And so I thought if I'm gonna go to serve in any service, it's gonna be the Navy. You don't look good in white though. I don't, I don't. I would look like a milkman. <laughs> So, a very nice place, that is true. I had two people that changed uh, okay. my direction. Uh, I, I had a cousin who was an officer in the Marine Corps, and I, I sent him an email. I was like, I'm, Tim, I'm going to join the Navy, and I'm going to be in Naval Intelligence. And he, he fired back. He's like, what's your phone number? And I sent him my phone number, and no sooner had I hit send than he's calling me. And he's like, look, I know you think it sounds very romantic to be out on a ship, for six months at a time, <laughs> yeah. going to all these wonderful tropical ports. He's like, I got to tell you. He's like, it's horrible. He's, he, he was at the time serving as an aide-de-camp to an Air Force general. He's like, he's like, what I would do if I were you, he's like, I joined the Air Force. He's like, they, he was stationed at the time down in Norfolk. He's like, the Air Force don't even stay at the naval base on Norfolk because they consider all the housing there where we live substandard. It is substandard. Yeah, he's like, we're all, they're all up at the Hilton Hotel. He's like, that's the service you need to join. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. We, it's funny that people say that the Air, I was there, obviously people know that I was in the Air Force for many years. Uh, well, still am, but they make fun of the Air Force as not being in the real military, and I, I, I proudly wear that, yep. that yep. badge. I'm like, yeah, it's not the real military. And the, the funniest joke was, uh, what was it like, if, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna butcher this joke, but there's like three, like an Army guy, Navy yep. guy, a Marine Corps guy, and an Air Force guy, and they each have a, a, a scorpion mm -hmm. in, in, their, in their tent. Mm -hmm. And the army's got, and they ask each guy what they would do to the scorpion. And the army guy says, well, I'd squash it with my boot. And the navy guy says, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll grill it on my, on my barbecue and then, you know, uh, eat it or feed it to my dog or whatever. And the Marine Corps guy's like, I'm going to eat it myself. And the Air Force guy says, I'm going to call the lobby and ask them why there's a tent in my room. <laughs> and it's, so, it's. It's true. I mean, I was uh, deployed over to Afghanistan, and I was uh, actually embedded with the Army. So I went over there as, yeah. you know, sort of an individual augmentee, and I was with the 18th Airborne Corps. And uh, I will never forget the, uh, the top-ranking Air Force officer in Afghanistan was an Air Force One star, and I was a second lieutenant at this time. And I show up in the dark of night in December of 2002, and I come walking in. Wait, you're in Afghanistan in December of 02? Yeah. Wow, I just missed you by like a month. Oh, really? I was there in September to November of 02. Because we had the uh, Maryland Guard was there with the A-10s. Yeah, they Bonner. had just replaced us. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I was there. I come walking in, and the uh, Air Force General comes walking up to me. He's like, you are the luckiest son of a bitch I've ever met. And I was like, why is that? He's like, this is your first deployment, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like it will never be as bad as it is here right now. He's like, the rest of your career is gonna be a cakewalk from being here with the Army. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's oh, that's terrible. Like those deployments, I look back on them with such fond memories, though. But I remember my first deployment. I'd been in Korea for a year before 9/11, but then after 9/11, October of 9/11, no kidding, I was sent to um, a base in some obscure area in the Middle East, and mm-hmm. they said I was going for at least they said up to six months. We don't know what you're going to be doing. We don't know who you're reporting to, mm-hmm. but you got to go there and tell them that you're here. And it was just you know send everybody and ask questions later. And it was basically when I got there was to set up a base that we launched all the attacks into Afghanistan from. And there was an army side of the base and a tiny little air force side of the base. Mm-hmm. And the army guys just looked like crap. I mean, these guys were just, they're all like 20 years old. Their uniforms look like crap because they've been in sitting in a tent for the last three weeks with, we had no clean water. Mm-hmm. We had bottled water that you could drink, but then when you took a shower, you couldn't drink it. Mm-hmm. Um, like anything out of the faucet was bad. And I think these guys were relegated to like one shower every three days. And so they'd go into the, the chow hall and, you know, half of the, I think two, one or two meals a day had to be MREs. Mm-hmm. And the one meal a day that was not, they would all flood in there once and it just smelled like shit, man. These guys just, and that was where I was first introduced to the special ops guys. Uh-huh. They had these guys with beards and I was yep. like, wait a minute, you can't have a beard. Why, yeah. why are these guys not shaving? And people would say like, you can't talk to them. Like yeah. they're, they're actually out like with the afghans and yep. i was like oh shit so okay but yeah i just remember this the stark difference between the air force and the Even, army and i was like i made a good decision <laughs> oh absolutely i mean when we got there the air force village which was bagram as you know was a old soviet base and yeah so we air force village would set up right by the old uh, air control tower uh, that the Soviets had put up yeah, there. Yeah, we had our ops desk in there, yeah. And we had it all cordoned off. They had uh, security forces uh, blocking entrances into and out of secure, out of uh, Air Force Village, even though Air Force Village was right smack dab in the middle of the much larger army base there yeah. in Bagram. And uh, <laughs> the, the security forces there were more to keep the army people out from coming in and stealing the stuff yeah. that we had that yeah. was to protect Yeah, people the would steal your people. shit. <laughs> they would. Like, and they knew it, too. Like, they knew that we had a better lifestyle, and they would come in and just poach whatever, you know, The, the weight room, that was the big thing. You had to weight protect room. the weight room because otherwise everything would walk off. Well, the other thing that was funny is we – this is in the fall of 02. Our whole uh, base was supposed to be lights out. So Bogram was supposed to be lights out because they didn't want uh, these – terrorists to launch rockets and have good aiming points and so it was all lights out and then they feared the army well they they learned that the army guys didn't deal well with lights out they were just crashing their humvees they were falling into ditches and and so they said all right the army needs to have at least some lights they had like their nice little slightly lit up area and of course the air force is all black and we were walking around in night vision goggles and doing just fine but these guys were like they're like yeah we couldn't trust the army guys to go lights out it was oh yeah, I loved I loved the experience uh, with the army. Um, yeah, you know, there's the easy way, the hard way, and then there's the army way. Yeah, and like you were saying, they they lived a different lifestyle than we did over there in Afghanistan. And you know, the Air Force is kind of known for complaining about how things are. And I remember asking one of the guy, one of the army guys that I was with, I was like, uh, you know things really seem to be rough for you guys, yet you guys never complain. And he kind of shrugs. He's like, oh, it could always be worse. And then about two weeks later, it would get worse for them. Yeah. So 
my hat's off to them. They they do yeah. amazing things. Yeah, I, I I make fun of the army. I make fun of everybody, but the yes, I, I make fun of the army for their the way they do things, the pain they go through. They make things a, a lot of times worse on themselves. Um, but man, yeah, they they put up with a lot of shit. Um, they're important. They're the ones that just do the garbage jobs. They don't get the the notoriety of the even the Marines, like they have that special esprit de corps and the, the Navy, they, the, each of the services sort of has their reputation. Even the Air Force, even though we're not the real military, <laughs> we're at least known as being smart and technological and people know that you know, we have the, the fighter airplanes and the satellites and all this yep. fancy stuff. And you look at the Army like, man, there's just kids with rifles out there and it just sucks, but it's necessary. And they gotta provide security and they're the ones that are oftentimes meeting with the local population, just yep. doing the hard work. Like they just, I have no idea what that is. Somebody might be attacking us. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're in we're in a friend's house, and he has some special security system that's talking to us. But it's right, Ring whatever. Plus or something. Yeah, whatever. Well, but anyway, and, yeah, and, you were saying. And, well, I was just, you know, that. That's where I really. I mean, I've always admired the military. Um, but it was over in Afghanistan where I just really gained so much appreciation for the kids, and really they are, the kids that join the military at 17 or 18 years old, uh, the things they're asked to do, the things they go do uh, willingly and without any sort of complaint. It it just, I, I try to put myself at where I was at 18, and... It was nowhere near what these kids were doing. And it, one thing that really sort of drove it home for me is outside, so I, I was an intelligence officer and, and we had sort of a makeshift skiff where we keep you know, all the, uh, the top secret information, the computers and all that. And you know, back then we were still dealing in a lot of paper and that we're printing things off. And uh, during the shift, you know, it was always the uh, lowest ranking enlisted person that had to go out uh, behind the, the the tent where we were and and burn the classified material that we had used that day and this was probably around Easter of 2003 I went back there to just kind of uh, it, I was working the night shift so I went back there in the middle of the night uh, just to kind of get some fresh air and there was a different smell than I was used to and because you you get attuned to the smell of uh, the area I that you like were. it. I miss it. I do kind the of miss smell it too. the Middle East. But there Ooh. was there is something that was a little bit sweeter than okay. that. I kind of walked around to see what was going on, and and here were two privates uh, burning uh, paper that contained some of the most important secrets that the United States had in our war fighting effort out there in Afghanistan. And one of them had gotten a care package from their mom that consisted of marshmallows. So they were roasting marshmallows over the fire where they were burning <laughs> these classified documents. And I was the like, efficiency. The efficiency. The imagination. And, and here they yes. are. They're, they're, these kids are entrusted with Just that, but they are still kind of kids having a, you know, it's a big camping trip for them. They're, you know, yeah. they're roasting marshmallows. No, I, I, I look back on it so fondly. Like I, I told my uh, parents recently I said join, going to the Air Force Academy was possibly the best decision I ever made mm-hmm. and they I, they're probably it brings a tear to their eye to hear them hear me say that but I struggled with it and I'm like I, I'm not a military person and I I, I just you know I, I have this opportunity I'm gonna take advantage of it but at the time you know I'm 18 
17 when I made this, the decision to go. Um, and you think of all the sacrifices that were along the way, and there were some tough ones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if I had done something else, if I had like chosen not to go in the military, I would have missed out on so much. Like, the, like you look at the immediate pain and it mm -hmm. sucks, but but now for the rest of my life, I can tell people I've done this. And yep. when I meet anybody in the military, we instantly have a, a rapport and we have we can just talk for hours. Like we've just been talking now for 20 minutes, just me and you, we already know each other. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I just, I love it. And I, I couldn't, I don't know, I'm having a hard time leaving because yeah. it's, it's a family. It's, it, it's so much more than just a job. Rumsfeld so, was right. Yeah, he was Rumsfeld absolutely right. Was Man right. knows something. <laughs> he absolutely <laughs> does. And I, and I think that that, um, you're, you're absolutely right. If, if I hadn't served in the military, now being on this side, I know I would have regretted it. I know the experiences that you have, the people you meet, the ridiculous situations you find yourself yeah. in, uh, you can't find out in the civilian world. Yeah. And only other people in the military kind of understand what yeah. you get. Even if you didn't inhabit the same time and place, Yeah. for every story you tell, somebody has a story yeah. that they can... Uh, tell that's going to make you laugh and it's going to remind you of something there there is a it, it's something that brings us all together yeah and it's only like one in a hundred americans has served in the military so i i obviously i know a ton of people in the military and i feel like it's a very common profession mm -hmm. obviously because of, of what i've done but one out of a hundred is not much nope. and it's like man like so many people are missing out on on that and um like I said, just the, the camaraderie across generations, yep. you make a great point there. Like I've talked to some World War II vets and I can, I can find common ground with a guy who's 90 years old. We can just bullshit for another couple hours yep. about basic training or getting deployed or something. And there are some things that just go across, cut across generations. And it's nice to to have that in common with them. And I think every veteran uh, and somebody, anyone who's currently serving right now, they have had multiple moments in their time in the military where just the reality of everything sets in and you kind of say to yourself, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Yeah. Like I, you know, wherever I am doing some of the things, it's just like, I, I can't believe that I'm doing this and that my, my uh, compatriots over here are, being asked to do this and it's just uh, yeah well even if it's for just a couple of years as well oh like, absolutely. I think my dad was only in I think for two active and like two to four reserve which is a small time but it's even him like we we still have quite a bit in common and I and think so you don't have to make a whole career out of it oh, absolutely I think just a few not. years it's like man if you're in your early 20s and you don't know what to do I think the military is a great option it so absolutely go for is it. uh and you know I think the bond is is so strong and especially the, the work that we were doing, you know, right after September 11th, where the country was at war. You know, I, I, I think s serving even at peacetime is, is wonderful, but it's all the more wonderful when you're serving at wartime. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, on the outside, become part of an organization or, or, or something that has that same sort of esprit de corps and where you truly are part of something larger than yourself. And, yeah. and it transitioning from the military uh, to civilian world, to the civilian life can be challenging because you don't have that instant made family. You don't have that same sort of mission to, to yeah. Uh, pursue. Yeah, I think people struggle with that. Like there are drawbacks, but I think overall, 
over the course of your life, um, it's a, a great decision. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. We could go on and on about the military, but we're somewhat limited in time here. So, so you went from uh, Air Force, you were, uh, then, then you got out, and then, then, then what? Then I'm a little unclear. Then you went right to law school? Is that yep. where you? Okay, and that's where you and that's I met. That's where, you, yeah, you and I met. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was on active duty for uh, six years, uh, entered in November of 2000, and then left in December of 2006. Uh, during that time, uh, my one of my brothers and then my folks had relocated down to Tucson, Arizona. So I left the Air Force. I was stationed at the Pentagon in D.C. and moved to Tucson and had the GI Bill. And law had always kind of interested me, and I really didn't know what I wanted to go do next. I had looked at the CIA. I had looked at defense contracting. And one of the reasons I left the military is I, I kind of wanted to uh, get away from sort of the crazy deployment schedule and, and spend more time with my uh, family because my parents were getting older and my mom was ill at the time. And, uh, you know, going into the CIA, the CIA has uh, pretty much the same sort of deployment schedule as the, uh, as the military. You're, you're going to be at a duty station for a couple of years, and then you're going to move and move and move, and you're going to be deployed worldwide. So law school seemed like a great place to kind of pursue uh, an interest of mine and then, you know, kind of figure out what comes next. Yeah. So... You know, we did that for three years down in uh, Tucson, and it was during the our final semester. Uh, I was I was getting involved in uh, Republican politics down in Tucson. I was uh, uh, the chairman of our legislative district, Republican Party, and our state senator resigned to run for Congress, and that kind of set off a domino effect. Uh, in Arizona, the legislative district, every district has one senator and and two representatives. They, you know, the boundaries are the same. You kind of serve that district. So when the the uh, senator resigned to run for Congress, one of the House members uh, went for the appointment to the Senate and got it. And so that created a vacancy in our legislative district House seat. And so I went for that appointment and got that, and so probably halfway through our final semester, I got appointed to the state legislature, and so finished off law school uh, up in Phoenix while serving as a, a sitting legislator. Okay, yeah, and that's where that's where you got me sucked into politics that's right. as well. That's right. <laughs> yeah, people. Um, that that's where uh, I initially ran for for office. I was just a slight sidebar here. Um, I always wanted to get into politics as well. That's why I went to law school, and that's why Ted and I have become great friends. Um, very common interest, sim similar background. And I was telling Ted about my desires to get into politics. He said, hey, just come to a meeting with me, and we'll just you can dip your toe in and see what the, the industry is like. And so I did, and I... You got bit. I got bit, and I met people in the local party who were all really nice, and I happened to live in central Tucson, which was a very Democratic district, and I, at the time, leaned more Republican, um, as I do now, to be honest. And I, well, they told me that there was nobody else running, and would I like to run? And I was in my last year of law school, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just give this a shot. It was more of a, on a whim. 
And I didn't think I had a chance of winning because of the, the ratio of Democrat to Republican, but I chose to do it anyway. It was a great experience, um, good people, tough things to do that I didn't like about politics, asking for money and having to fudge the truth on your positions at times to make things work. I mean, some people say politicians lie. It's like, well, I kind of understand why they do because you're just trying to make everybody happy. You know, it's, a, it's like a human instinct that a lot of us have. So anyway, but uh, yeah, I got in there. Eventually I, I, I lost because of the, obviously there's a huge ratio of Democratic to Republican, even though we had two at the time, two independents who were former Democrats. Mm -hmm. So I thought I had a chance, but it turned out not to be true. So anyway, but that's my little sidebar there. But um, you fought a valiant I fight. Did. Ted uh, was there for all of that. You uh, in the bluest of blue districts. I mean, yeah. uh, here in Arizona, uh, Flagstaff and and Tucson, more so Tucson, is really the Democrat stronghold yeah. of the state. And the district in which uh, you were running was a stronghold within a stronghold. Yeah, so. I know. I could do a whole show on how all that experience went, but probably the thing that I learned that I didn't know going into it was how much your own how much you're afraid of your own side mm -hmm. and it's not like you're gonna lose a primary not that although that is a concern it's that you're trying people are so it's a religion in a way and if you deviate from that religion people get really angry and, and there's almost like a church or these people who are very diehard um, Republicans or Democrats or whatever party you're in there are these couple of dozen people or maybe a couple of hundred people that are out there to help you and they just go all in for you mm -hmm. and you don't want to disappoint them and if you deviate from whatever they conceive as, as the ideal Republican um, or Democrat they call you on it and then they email you and they put stuff up on Facebook about you and you spent all this time trying to make sure that everything's okay like I spent more time trying to make my own side happy than fighting it was almost a relief mm -hmm. to go to the debates and fight with Democrats, because we were all in there for the same thing. We all knew we were gonna go there in a debate and fight. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of respected each other, and we knew the rules, and it was fine. Mm -hmm. But the part that you don't get used to is trying to, you know, quell your own side. Anyway, so that, I thought that was the... Well, and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, two things that you said there. One is uh, the part that always amazed me about being involved in, in politics, like at the, the state level, you know, running for a legislative district or whatever, is is the people that will come out to help you? you know, yeah, they're not getting. They're paid. good people. They're good people. They will they will go put up uh, signs. Yeah, for you in. They'll walk in hundred. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll be out there. Oh, it's amazing. And, and so I, I think that's amazing. And the, and these people just do it because they love politics, or they, you know, they're they're really impassioned uh, with where they think the the state and the country's going. Um, but by the same token. You, as the candidate, know what you need to do. It's like, look, I'm running against another candidate. I, I need to garner enough votes to to win here. And so there are there are some fights you're willing to have, and there are other fights that you think that you 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 shouldn't be picking up now. You can deal with that later, provided that you you win. And so there's constantly that sort of balancing act. So I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we got through with that. We, um, I lost you. You were you, up, you were appointed. Then you had to run anyway. Then you won. Yeah. So this. Okay. So I got appointed in March of 2010. That's right. Uh, and then we had to run because 2010 was an election year because the the House and the Senate in Arizona 
uh, legislature are up every two years. So you serve, senators and representatives serve the same district uh, in the same amount of time. So, you know, it's, it's a unique system to Arizona. So we had to run for re-election. And as you know, that summer we were studying for the bar exam. Which I, we both passed. I, I was terrified. Thank God, I, I was terrified too. I, <laughs> I was thinking about postponing it because I was like, if I take the bar, we're going to get the results at the beginning of October. And if I fail the bar, yep. I have just handed my opponent yep. the perfect attack ad. And it will be yep. state, at least state-level news. Absolutely. Candidate Ted vote, can't Ted, even pass the bar. Why yep. is he going to be a state legislator? Exactly. Ted Vogt wants to make laws for the state of Arizona. He and can't even pass the state bar exam. I know. God, talk about pressure. But we yeah. eked, out a, we eked yeah. out of a victory. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So that brings us to... Um, to kind of to present day, which yeah. um, I want to kind of shift gears into just what it's like to be a legislator, just your daily routine. We kind of talked about the campaign a little bit, but so now you're in um, and now you're a state legislator. So I, I don't even know really where to begin, but um, from the beginning, so you get sworn in um, and then what is your first responsibility? What is your first concern as a state, once you're sworn in as a state legislator? So when I got sworn in the first time when I got appointed, uh, it was March and we were dealing with the budget. And I kind of bring this up because it was my immediate concern when I got sworn in. And as a state representative or a state senator, that is your, that's why we go to the legislature. You have to produce a balanced budget every year um, that gets approved and uh, when, we, when I got appointed, this is 2010, Arizona was so hard hit by the Great Recession. Uh, there was very, I, I think per capita, Arizona had the worst economic impact of the, of the Great Recession. And I, I will say that's one of the things that really surprised me uh, about state politics is one, sort of the breadth of things that you're asked to vote on in the state legislature. So the police powers of the state are much greater than the federal government. So you can be voting on things like, hey, what are we, you know, what are we gonna do for unemployment down to, we're gonna set the penalties for somebody who steals a packing crate. I mean, it's just a, a huge and very diverse set of issues you're gonna work on, but your biggest responsibility is to pass that balanced budget. But what I quickly learned is the state legislature only had control of about a third of the budget because so the rest of the budget is set either by federal mandates of the dollars we're taking from the federal government you the state must spend this much money or different lawsuits especially with respect to the Department of Corrections mandate what sort of care level uh, inmates must uh, receive so the two sort of driving factors of the budget in the state of Arizona is uh, DES, uh, the unemployment, underemployment, sort of those social welfare services. A lot of that is controlled by the federal government. And then the Department of Corrections, because of those lawsuits. So Department of Economic Security yep. and then Department of Corrections. Department of Corrections. Okay. Okay. And then you also had access. Uh, which is our Medicare, Medicaid programs. So those, those three entities really are on autopilot in terms of what the spending is. And so that really only leaves about 
a third of the budget for the legislature to really sort of tinker around with. Mm -hmm. And of that 33%, over half of that is education. Yeah. So that's, I, I'm sure it's true in other states as well. That's yeah. why education is always such a hot, hot button issue here in the state of Arizona, because when you've only got a third of the, the budget to deal with and over 50% of that is education, no matter what you do, is going to affect education. Yeah. And during those times, during the Great Recession, you know, we had already taken steps uh, to try to shield the state budget from any sort of cuts up to and including selling the Capitol buildings yeah. for about $750 million and leasing them back. I mean, we, we took a bunch of steps to try to insulate the budget from yeah. the economic reality, but it was, it was so great that eventually uh, things such as education and all that uh, had to get cut because we had lost over 30% of the revenues coming into the state. Oh, wow, yeah. So, um, but even like the, the, just the nuts and bolts of being there, how long, what's your work day like? What's the legislative session? It's, it's what, four months or something? And it's Around every year? there. So Arizona is a citizen legislature, probably like most states other than maybe California and New York. I mean, this is a part-time job. Yeah. So the legislative session uh, begins the second week of January, and theoretically, it's only supposed to run 100 days, which takes you into April, May time frame. But uh, you can't, you can't not produce a balanced budget. So we were always fortunate that uh, we were able to kind of get agreement on a budget by early May. But before I got appointed, there was uh, one time where they. They never actually passed a budget to go up to the governor. The governor had to mandate that they sent the budget up, and that, that didn't work. So there was actually a lot of litigation over mm -hmm. how long the legislative session has to go, when, okay. when is a budget transmitted up there. So kind of going back to your question, so the session usually runs from about January through, uh, through May, and your days, you're up there Mondays through Thursdays. And you always start 1.30 on uh, Monday afternoons with the floor session. And then pretty much the mornings of the following week are held by, that's where you have your committee hearings. So I was on Ways and Means and Judiciary. Uh, and um, I was the Ethics Chair, which is a, a committee that only meets as necessary. Mm -hmm. so, and then you always have floor session usually in the afternoon where you're, okay. you're voting on things. Okay, and then when you, so you're, you're on these committees, and do you volunteer for these committees, or does, who assigns you to these? So the, the speaker, okay. uh, uh, in, con, in, consult, in consultation with the, the minority leader, will appoint the people to the, uh, the, the committees. Okay. So, yeah, the decision's kind of made. And, of course, certainly you're going to let your leadership know, I'm really interested in this, I want to work on this, and, okay. you know, they try to... Uh, make it possible like accommodate for you. your skills yeah. or, or whatever exactly okay okay and then uh, you know if you're really gonna do the the job justice you need to be working all that time when the legislature is in session but you really need that off session time that's really when you're working on whatever policy things you want to do next session so even when the sessions over in Correct. May or whatever the next six months you're 
talking to constituents and you're coming up with plans and yes. policies. And so you're still working. You're absolutely. And you're getting paid a grand total of, I know it's changed now, but what is it? Uh, no, it hasn't. It hasn't oh. changed since 1998. Oh. Oh, it's $24,000. $24,000. <laughs> this is the one time that I actually voted for a pay increase for government workers. And I generally, as a libertarian leaning person, I want a smaller government and all that, but I do understand that certain jobs require a certain paycheck. And I, I was shocked when I learned that it's $24,000 because then only like either rich people or retired people can run. Correct. Correct. It, it makes I mean, it very difficult to... And it's an important you, job. Yes. Or you you definitely need to be self-employed or something like that. Yeah. Because uh, even if you're not going to work during the off session, I don't know a lot of employers that yeah. can give you the ability to go up there for four or five months. Yeah, yeah, I, I was, I was shocked to learn that when I ran. I was like, this, this thing sucks. This, this is. <laughs> but so maybe, it's, maybe it all worked out for you in the I end. Tried to dodge the bullet when I didn't get elected. Um, okay, so so then so you're you're going through um, the 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 daily grind. Um, what about dealing with lobbyists? How, how would they come to you? Would you go to them? Would you make, what was your relationship like, like with them? Because we all hear about yeah. the lobbyists and they're the bad guys and they write the legislation. Like, what was that really like? So uh, it, it's very interesting. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm against term limits. Okay. So Arizona enacted term limits uh, back in 2000. And by the time I was there, pretty much all the people that came in before the term limit system were, you know, retired at that point. So everyone I was there with was under the, the term limit, uh, I guess, sort of structure that we had adopted. And what that ultimately does is makes the legislator the temporary help. And the real institutional knowledge is pushed to either staff or lobbyists who've been around forever. They're the okay. ones who... You know, I was here 20 years ago. I understand the evolution of this. Let me help educate you on these things. And, and so while I understand people's frustration with, hey, these people go to Congress or they go to the legislature and they park themselves for 25 years or whatever, and uh, they, they don't seem to do anything, well, now you've got unelected people that really kind of have the knowledge of how things work up there. And, and that's something that I think the public really needs to take into consideration on these things. Do you want somebody who is unaccountable and unelected really sort of calling the shots up there where you're just cycling these people through these uh, these legislatures? And I, look, I, there are a lot of smart people up there that, that uh, learn quickly. There are a lot of smart uh, legislators that, uh, you know, from what they did before and what their uh, you know, kind of what they've kind of, what they're passionate about are very knowledgeable and become the subject matter experts that you go to. But again, going back to the, what I was saying earlier about in terms of the broad uh, number uh, subjects that you are asked to vote on, inevitably you, you are going to need to kind of take from staff and take from, uh, from lobbyists and try to synthesize that and come up with a vote. So I, I think while initially I understand the arguments for term limits, I just think there is a, uh, th there is a downside to that that I, I don't think it's enough uh, sort of thought when people have that yeah. discussion. No, that's interesting because I was initially against term limits just on an ideological 
perspective, I thought, well, a term limit, if the people want you in there, who, what does it matter? Now I'm sort of for them because I, it does seem like there are sticking points. People are in there for a long time. But then you bring up a great point as well that now unelected people are now the experts. So maybe there's just, there's no easy way out. Like we're looking for a silver bullet to solve all these problems when in fact, maybe the problem is just that we have a lot of people who are trying to get by and live in the same state or country. Yeah. And they just can't agree on everything. And so you get these milk toast kind of middle of the road answers. And that's just how it is. Well, so, and the, you know, a, a, another thing that happens, it, well, maybe government's being asked to weigh in on too many things. Yeah. Well, that's now we're getting the into the good part of, of the episode. Because, uh, you know, Let's talk and, about the world now, Well, Ted. and I was, I, okay. look, I was sort of a victim of that. Yeah. As a legislator, how do you prove to people that you're effective? Well, Passing more laws. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's the number of bills that I successfully got written into law. And, you know, you kind of have to stop and be like, I don't know if that's a, a great way to tell people whether or not you're effective. Yeah, I think it's terrible. And I think the the number of law or number of bills that keep getting introduced every year increases here in the state, um, and uh, you know maybe maybe we don't need to have a law on everything. Maybe there should be some areas outside of yeah. you know the legislative process that just kind of well that's know. the hard part to get through. Um, so yeah, now I want to shift gears into talking about just the world and what we think of certain things, the fun stuff, as I like to say. But um, yeah, maybe there shouldn't be a law on everything. Like mm -hmm. we think every every little problem we want to, it's it's like it's it's like an instinct mm -hmm. to then pass a law on it, and it's like well maybe the answer is some sort of private action, like. If you don't like what that business is doing, why not just not attend that business? I'm, I'm for boycotts, too. If you want to organize a boycott and march up and down the street and say X business is just behaving poorly, okay, great, tell us about it. Maybe I wouldn't want to mm -hmm. uh, patronize that business either, but to spring load right to a law, well, now you introduce lawyers and courts and police officers and litigation, and, it, and it, you know you can do that, but... Just realize that there's a cost. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. You know, there. I, I don't doubt any that there are there. When a constituent comes forward with uh, a problem, I don't doubt that that is a real problem that needs a solution. The question is, does it need a law to solve that, or yeah. is there some sort of alternate way that this can get resolved? And like you say, I think the the most effective way uh, for people, especially when it comes into sort of the commercial setting or anything like that, is vote with your dollars or vote with your feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough line to draw. I mean, because you, you, need, you need laws for certain things. I think the way I like to think about it is I, I look at the law as, I'll get some somewhat ideological here, but the law is sort of, it's force. It, it's are you willing to take a person's money or freedom or life to do what you're trying to do. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to take from them, if you're not willing to throw them in prison, then the answer is private sector. So now I'm not gonna say that people need to always agree on what is force on, or on what requires force, but that's the initial starting point for me is, am I willing to call up police officers to knock down this person's door to haul them off to jail to do what I wanna do? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. Like even debating with some some other good friends, like they say, well, that's just wrong. It needs to be a law. And I, I said, well, you realize what that what that entails. Mm -hmm. I think speech is a great is a great 
what place to start. Like there are certain levels of speech that um, that we don't like, but we don't have a law against it. I mean, the very fir the First Amendment is that. So you have people up there. I think what was that crazy group that would protest at funerals? Like God uh, hates Westboro, fags. Uh, Westboro Baptist Church. That's right. Yeah. Those people would do really would say really terrible things, but they wouldn't actually Im physically force themselves on the funerals. They would hold up signs. I mean, it was terrible. Like mm -hmm. these people are awful. Mm -hmm. I'll admit. Um, but I wouldn't pass a law to prevent them from doing that, but a lot of people would. They say, well, there's a line. Certain things are just really bad, and we can't have that. Mm -hmm. And it seems pretty cut and dry in the Westboro Baptist Church case, but then there's some weird ones that don't really apply. Like, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but maybe, maybe you can. Well, I, I think kind of going to that, and this, this, especially when it comes to speech, it reminds me of what Justice Brandeis said, which is, you know, the remedy to speech with which we disagree is not less speech, it's more. And kind of going to the example that you brought up about that Westboro Baptist Church, you know, uh, in 2011, when there was uh, that attempted assassination attempt on Gabby Giffords, and uh, I think about six or seven people were killed. This was right down in our backyard in yeah. Tucson. Uh, the Westboro Baptist Church wanted to show up and, and uh, protest uh, some of the funerals there. And what ended up happening is there were some counter-protests, I think some bikers and stuff like that. They set up a perimeter around the family where, uh, and the, the route that they were going from the church to the, the graveyard, and they set up a perimeter, and they, they blocked the family's view of the Westboro Baptist. That's right. They like held up big yep. like screens that you couldn't see them. And yep. Then, okay. big, yep, signs. So there was American a peaceful flags. solution. There was a peaceful solution that you yeah. know, didn't require... Uh, government involvement and kind of harkens back to what uh, Justice Brandeis says is more speech, not less. And if, if there's one thing that I think really concerns me right now but at, at the, at, throughout the country is we're losing that. Uh, people want to impose their ideas and rather than hear the other side, they either want to shout them down or, or leave, you know, I want my speech protected. I don't want your speech protected. And yeah. I think that cuts against this country's experience over the last, you know, 240 some odd years. Yeah. I, so the argument against, and I'll, pr I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate here, the argument against um, allowing just any speech, and granted, not any speech is protected. Like there's, they say you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Obviously you can if there is a fire. but. Speech that puts people in immediate physical danger, I believe it's like incitement, fighting words, obscenity, which is, is not very well defined in some commercial speech are the big categories and defamation and things. So there are some defined categories where you can regulate speech, but just general content regulation is not uh, allowed for absent some extreme circumstance. And so people say, well, in the internet right now, you have lies that are being, being told on Facebook and it's causing either social strife or it's causing people to... Uh, for example, not be able to go to the polls, and so therefore Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter are now regulating that, and they can't do that, therefore we need to regulate mm -hmm. them. And I, um, and I guess the justification is that they are posing as platforms, but then they're still regulating some speech, which means that the little speech that, it, or the speech that's on their platform is now fair game. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what do you say to that? Like, can you regulate Twitter and Facebook for because they're trying to regulate. It's well, a weird 
philosophical question. I don't know if you quite get what I'm saying, but. Well, so I, I'm, I, I think I'm still struggling with this myself, and so I'll, I'll put yeah. a plug in there. I just watched this documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, where they interview uh, some of the engineers that worked on like Facebook, Twitter, and all that stuff, and, and, and these people feel it's kind of gotten out of hand. So you're either, you're either going to be, uh, if you're going to avail yourself of, uh, you know, sort of the First Amendment protections as a, you know, a publisher or whatever, then be a publisher. Um, if you're going to be a platform, then I, I do think it's possible to regulate those things. You need to be responsible for what's being put on there if, you, if you're not a publisher, if you're, if you're making money off this stuff, if, if these things are uh, being sold to the highest bidder in terms of putting ads out there. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. It's an area that I struggle with, but I, 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 I don't think that social media is doing us a lot of good right now. I yeah. think there seems to be a, a lot of harm, and it's totally manufactured. That's I, sort of to be honest, I'm off all social media now. I finally got rid of Instagram and things like you that. You did? Oh, yes. damn it. I just, it, it's just one of those things. It's like, why? Look, I've signed up for this service. I've, I've you know, I'm created this account. I'm out there, uh, and, you know, it seems like, there's a bunch of stuff that I just don't like and I don't agree with. I don't, you, you can actually feel yourself getting sort of stressed out about this stuff or, or, or you know, maybe feeling anxious about this. I was like, this yeah. is totally manufactured. I don't, I don't have to be there. And, and certainly the, the Twitter sphere and Facebook and all that stuff seems like very loud, like everybody feels that way. But I still think once you put down your phone and walk away, it doesn't affect that many people. Yeah, I, well, just when you were just talking about this just now, I think, Maybe it's not that we're, we're not, we shouldn't try to regulate their speech, but what we should try to do is determine whether they are being a platform or a content creator. Yeah. So if they are um, modifying people's content, okay, well, now you're more of a content creator, and now we can't hold you responsible for what you say. So if mm -hmm. you say something that's defamatory, or if you regulate somebody who's saying something defamatory on, on your platform, now you've done it so much to where now you are the person who's, who's responsible for that speech and then we can hold you accountable to the categories that I talked mm -hmm. about, incitement, mm -hmm. uh, fighting words, obscenity, and, and, and obscenity, or commercial speech and defamation. So maybe that's the way to think about it is that we're not regulating the content, we're just regulating whether you're a publisher or a platform. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that idea, but I think just trying to regulate the content is as bad as it, as it is. Um, as bad as, as some of the content is, I don't know that it's a, I don't think it's a good way to go. Well, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if, you know, Twitter and Facebook are the ones that are really going to be capable of solving this problem themselves. That's the only thing. It's like, look, they benefit from the structure the way it is right now. Um, you know, the, the information, the data that's being sold, you know, we're, we're sort of the product here. You know, yeah. if you're not paying for a service, then you are the service. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if they have the ability to kind of do it themselves because they'll talk about, oh, it's just the algorithms or the, you know, the the your, your news feed and stuff like that. And yeah. we'll, we'll have a different algorithm that will change this. And that j just kind of seems like you're you're taking something that's the problem, thinking that there's a solution within that problem. But it's just I. I I don't know. This is going to be. This is a very interesting time, especially with the election going on right now. Yeah. Um, 
and the the discussion that's just beginning to be had in DC. But I think you, if any of you watched some of the earlier testimony when like Mark Zuckerberg and those guys came in to testify in the Senate, I think that's where you really learn the limits of government. I mean, you, you look at these senators that are 60, 70, 80 years old, they really don't use these platforms. Maybe their staffers do, but when they're sitting there trying to engage in a very uh, substantive discussion with these, uh, you know, these tech CEOs, they were totally lost. Yeah. And, and, and many of them admitted it from the dais. They're like, you know, I, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand any of this. I just hope it gets resolved before I die or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely think a lot of the problems that we're seeing today are because of, of social media. I think it's the first time in human history, just in the last 10 years, where darn near everybody on earth has a platform that everybody else in the earth could access instantaneously. Mm -hmm. Even go back a hundred years when whatever you said just stuck within your family or your friend group and now, like that's how humans operated for hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of years. And now just in the last 15, I guess whenever Facebook came, we'll call it 15 just to put a round number, now it's like boom, mm -hmm. explosion. And so now you have people living in different worlds, uh, figuratively, almost literal, literally, that are now talking to each other using a language that they don't quite understand. Um, yeah, there's gonna be conflict. Mm -hmm. And so people try to lay this at the foot of whether it's Trump or Obama or whoever. And I think it's just a lot of it's social media. I don't, that's the one big thing. And it's shown just in something as simple as like suicide rates among teens, a definite spike up in the last 10 years. Yep. So. And, and I think, as a matter of fact, they touch on this in that social dilemma is, you know, it's human nature uh, to seek approval or to listen to feedback from, you know, five, six, you know, 10 people in our lives. You know, we, we, we want to make our family proud. We want to make our friends proud. We want, you know, we, we want to be liked. But now when you get on social media, suddenly what you're saying and what you're doing is uh, subject to the criticism of 10,000, a million people. And it's like, are we equipped to deal with that? Yeah, no, you can't. You go on there and you'll see a couple of dozen bad comments and you're just like, my freaking day is ruined. Absolutely. And it could be a bot. It could be somebody in their basement who has a terrible life. Yep. I mean, you, you just you just don't know. So. And you publish it to what you think are your friends on Facebook. Yeah. And then it gets republished outside of that. And, you know, even even if you thought, hey, I'm, I'm going to say something controversial out on social media to my friends it can just, you know, go like wildfire. Yeah, I, well, I've, I've, I don't post political stuff. I don't post my own stuff that much, but I do once every couple of months. And I've had people just completely misinterpret what I said. And I thought I was pretty careful. Like I'm, I'm a, a lawyer and like, I'm pretty careful with my words. And some people are like, oh, I thought you meant this. I thought you meant that. I'm like, oh my God, if I'm having these problems, like imagine Joe Blow out there with the, he went, you know, a semester at junior college and, Maybe he's a cell phone salesman. Like, what? What the hell's? What kind of problem is he having? Or, or you think about like you know the teens. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it just trying to put the the results of whatever you put out there in 
in perspective. It's like, you know, you can see where these kids are thinking, oh my God, my life is over. Yeah. Whereas, no, it's, it's not over. Matter of fact, you could completely unplug and you'll, you know, be able to move forward. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely something that I really think that as a society, we need to take a hard look at. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I don't know, I, we, we can kind of bring it into the, the present day politics, but um, what do you think of the, the protests and all the police stuff? Because I think that's like the big thing. Well, we have COVID and we have the protests. Those are like kind of the big things right now. I don't. I, I think a lot of the protests are driven by social media. I think some of that is a social media phenomenon. It's definitely being really. organized by social media. Yeah. So, what, what do you think of all of it? I haven't talked to you in a while. Well, I think. Look, I I absolutely believe uh, in our right to protest. Uh, it's when we start getting violent, or we start looting, when there starts to be property damage, where you cross a line. And I actually think that some very valid social issues that were raised with the killing of George Floyd, um, where I really felt like we were kind of getting to a critical mass in terms of, I think everyone who sees that video can say that is wrong, that cannot happen in this country, we need to do something about that. When you think about where sort of the national discussion was uh, in late May, early June, as long, once it started getting violent and as long as these riots continue on, that message is being lost and that drive to get something uh, changed is being hijacked by, by, these, by these violent protests, by this looting. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how these groups police themselves. I mean, I, I definitely think there are people who are out there that are protesting, that are fully utilizing their First Amendment uh, rights. Their message is being absolutely co-opted and lost by a group that has probably some other agenda. Yeah, it's it's hard to say where the who is part of what groups anymore. It, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what to think or believe. I mean, I think they do tend to unfortunately run on the same group. Like whenever you have a protest, there's always going to be violent fringes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like while we try to separate the protests from the looters, there's a lot of protesters who are just too chicken to loot. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so they, they kind of agree with it. So I don't know, like I'm, maybe I'm the, the, you know, the, the jerk right winger on this particular thing, but I don't know. I think Social media has done some great things, but I think it makes things look worse than they really are. Um, I think it, we don't look at facts, we, imme we immediately get the gratification, we look at the video and we think we know what happened. Yep. And in the vast majority of cases, when we whatever we initially thought from the video, it ends up being something very different down the road. Not to say that the, the George Floyd incident or any other particular incident it has been blown out of proportion, but I feel like when we look back at the last half dozen or you know six to ten of them, or to six to ten of them over the last two years, most of them ended up being. I'm like, okay, well, that's not what I thought happened. So I don't, I don't know. Well, like, I, you know, I, one of the things I think about, and we touched on a little bit earlier, yeah. is in social media, there's no scale. You know, you, what do you mean by you, no scale? So you think you're putting something out there that just your friends are going to see. Oh, okay. But then it gets pushed beyond that circle of friends, and you who know, don't know you, who don't know you, and there's, there's, you know, 
There's no context. There's tens of thousands of people that see this now. Um, and so that you, you, didn't, you didn't intend it to go out there, but there it went, and now there's all these people piling yeah. on. There's also a sense that my news feed, my, what I'm seeing on my social media page is everybody. Everybody shares this idea. They don't. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I, I think once you kind of cut the cord, you, know, you realize that life goes on without social media. You don't hear some of these things yeah. that are happening on in Twitter. And then one, one of the other things is we used to, I don't know if we used to say, but you know, people are like, everybody's voice counts, everybody's voice you know, should be heard. Well, now we're hearing a lot of voices. And <laughs> Some and people's every, voices and, shouldn't and, be and heard. Everybody's vo- and everybody's volume is being cranked up to the same level. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's revelatory in terms of like, oh my God, some people think that way out there. Yeah. But how, how much do they really represent? I mean, yeah. everybody's, everybody's shouting at the same volume. Uh, and but not everybody has the same qualifications. Everybody doesn't have the same qualifications. And again, there's no scale. That's a good way to look at it. Like yeah. I've, I've noticed that where I've seen debates between a PhD level person and some Joe Blow who I know knows nothing. But when you see it just in a little text on a, on a news feed, it makes them look equal. Yep. And maybe the guy that has no education has a better profile picture or yep. whatever. And you're like, maybe that guy's smart. It, it's, it yeah. totally throws you off your normal, your normal, you know, filter. So everybody's volume on, on social media is all cranked up to 11. Yeah. Everybody's just, you know, and well, then the concept of social media influencers still kind of blows my mind. Well, yeah. And, and also I think just mechanically, if I say I have 800 friends on Facebook and you have the same, but we have like 30 in common, you know, if I post something on mine, I'm responding to my 800 friends who I see all of their stuff on my feed and you're bringing a different, you know, premise to your to the conversation. And so, if I post something on there, you're thinking, "God, Greg's such a dick." Like, what is he saying? Well, I'm responding to 200 or eight, sorry, 770 people that you're not seeing, mm-hmm. and you, and it's the same with you. So maybe I am seeing some legitimate crap that I'm responding to, but you wouldn't know it. I always have this I conversation mean, with my dad. Uh, look, we all have a narrator in our head, and. You know, my dad can send an email out to all three boys, and we interpret the same information completely different. And you're related. Uh, we're related, and it's, you know, it's based off of the relationship we have with our dad. It's like, dad's upset. He's criticizing me. Oh, dad's just giving us some facts. Or, you know, you've, you've got that voice in your head that when you read that email, when you read that post, yeah, you are projecting all sorts of things on those bits of information so and it, interpreting it in different ways. So it's hard to separate the message from the messenger. Correct. Unless you're really good, yeah. which that I want to now move on to um, like the election. Mm-hmm. So message from messenger, obviously we have a precedent right now that gets steps in it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll admit, I, I like a lot of the policies um, even him, I think that it's, I, I tend to laugh. I don't get offended. I don't get disgusted. There are some things I'm like, okay, that was stupid, but I'm sort of, I sort of laugh. That's my initial emotional reaction. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's my emotional reaction. So I don't get too disturbed by what he says. I more look at the policies, which I kind of like. I, I lean right on quite a lot of things. 
So I'm inclined to be able to, to vote for that. I probably, I don't know, we'll see. I probably won't. But, um, or I might just sit it out like I did last time. <laughs> Take the hero's way out. <laughs> but, uh, so, so what do you think, um, what, what is your view of just the, the, the presidency the last couple of years, or even if you want to go back to Obama, like, what do you think of the, the presidency, where it has gone recently? It, it's, you know, I, I grew up, I was, I was born in the early 70s. Uh, the first president I remember is Reagan. Uh, and maybe I idealize sort of your, you know, your childhood and things like that and how things were. Um, I'm very, I don't know if I'm, I, I, I won't say that I'm disappointed in the presidency. What I'm actually, as I get older, uh, becoming more disappointed in Congress uh, because I, I feel like we're migrating into almost a parliamentary system. I mean, watch any State of the Union. The president gets up there, speaks, his party stands, and, you know, standing ovation, the other party sits. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a Republican president or a Democrat president. Over the last, it seems like, 20 years, that's the way it's gone. And it seems like it's party over what your responsibility is. I don't see a lot of senators and and representatives looking out for the institution that they serve in. I mean, you are a co-equal branch of government. You have a duty there. Uh, you know, you, you not only need to vet policy and see whether or not it works, but you know, if, if somebody's getting out of their lane, you, you need to exert your constitutional authority and, and put them back in, in, into their lane. And, and I really think that Congress has atrophied over the years in terms of taking on that role. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the presidency is, you know, swelling to kind of take that place as is the, the court. I mean, how many things are being litigated out in the Supreme Court? Yeah. You know, I, and I think that, and we've talked about this in law school too, I think that Congress has delegated a lot more authority than they really should to the, the administrative state. You know, hey, we're going to come up with these grandiose things. We're going to create this agency, and then agency, you actually go figure it all out. We're we're out of it. And again, it kind of goes back to uh, the accountability. Do you want an unelected bureaucrat responsible for those things? Yeah. And and people will say, well, yeah, but you know, we elect the president. The president selects the. Uh, uh, appoints who's going to be the head of that federal bureaucracy and the Senate confirms yes and that kind of nudges an agency a little bit but when you kind of look at the the rules and the regulations and, and you know a bureaucracy is built to survive and provide some sort of consistency I mean the bureaucracy yeah. is it, it takes a long time to move a bureaucracy well I think we I think the original problem is like we talked about in the beginning, was we, we expect our government to do too much. Mm -hmm. And so when Congress has all these people you know, knocking down their door to, to do all these things, they can't help but delegate to a, an agency. Mm -hmm. And so, I, yeah, I think Congress is a, is a problem, but I think a lot of it's just in our culture and our psyche and that we expect so much out of so few people. Mm -hmm and they have to delegate. Mm -hmm. And then we get angry when the people, the delegatee mm -hmm. uh, 
is doing things that we didn't expect or don't like. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I think as far as the presidency, um, it's, we like a soap opera and we like to have somebody that we can watch on the TV every day and we focus on that person because they're the most powerful on an individual level of anybody in the world. And so we get caught up in the soap opera and so the, the media gravitation goes toward that. And so then maybe that's why that person ends up getting so much power. It's a weird dynamic. I think people just coalesce around power. And I don't know how to fight that other than through just education and talking. I, I don't know. Well, and the, there's another part of it too. There, there's sort of a fatigue that's setting in. I mean, there, there's almost no respite anymore from politics. Yeah. Uh, we're confronted with it all the time that there almost there are fewer and fewer spaces where you can go and interact with people where you're not being hit with some sort of political message. Some people want it that way, which freaking drives me nuts. And I think people need AOC people said need space. beauty is political. We we On, to, I was like almost run my head through the computer. I mean, people. <laughs> I, I, my uh, my grandfather was of the generation. Uh, you don't talk politics, you don't talk religion. Yeah. It's like, you just, you never talk those things. Anymore, I don't know if there are any spaces anymore where you're, you, you aren't getting barraged by yeah. political messages or political discussion. Yeah. Or political, and and I, I do think that that's, that's affecting society too because, you know, are you able to even have a beer with somebody anymore watching a football game? Are you I able know. to watch a beer anymore watching a basketball game? It's funny, like, as much as I, I love talking about politics, I do cringe when a political statement is made in a group of people because I'm like, oh, my God, what are we, where is it going to go? Where are the emotions going to go? Um, and then I feel like another question is, do I interject or not? Do I provide my opinion or not? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I was at a... Uh, person's house last night having dinner Pe most people I didn't even know I knew one guy there and some politics started coming up and some people said some things that I wasn't quite sure I'd, I agreed with but at the same time I'm like well I'm eating dinner at this person's house I don't want to be rude and so I just kind of listen um, but yeah it does it does bug me unless I'm around good friends or family like politics is it, it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and so um you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if we should avoid it or if we should find a better way to talk about it, or or what. But I think a good start would be if just things weren't thrown into the political arena. Like, like why does beauty have to be political? Why does a movie have to? Why can't I just say I just don't like that movie for whatever reason? Yeah. Why does it have to be attached to my ideology? Well, I, I, I'll tell you one one of the things that has really sort of. I don't know if it upsets me, but it, it, it makes me sad, is the controversy around standing for the national anthem. Mm -hmm. uh, look, I, I will always stand for the national anthem. Me too. Uh, and I would love other people to stand for the national anthem. When you think of what people have done, the, the service, the sacrifice uh, that folks have done that we know about and that we'll never know about, I, I mean, you just it means a lot. It means a great deal. But, you know, sir, having served in the military, we, we serve to protect and defend the Constitution. And part of that is the freedom not to stand and the freedom to kneel if you want to. 
And I may not agree with why they're doing it. I may agree with why they're doing it. I, maybe I wish they'd found a different way to do it. But they're allowed to do it. So don't, don't say we need everyone to stand for, for my benefit or for other veterans. I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for other veterans, but I think we understand that we, we went out there and we serve to protect the Constitution. And, and oftentimes there are things uh, that we do in this country uh, that are perfectly protected by the Constitution that maybe we don't agree with or maybe it makes us uncomfortable, but that's your right. Yeah. You know, that's your right of being a citizen of this country. So I, I, I just, I, I hate to see where the discussion has gone, mm -hmm. that it's become some sort of litmus test for whether or not you're patriotic. Yeah, well, it, yeah, I know. I. I will stand for the national anthem. Um, I will stand for other countries' national anthems too. I think for me, a lot of it, it's just respect. I was stationed in Japan. We yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I would stand for another country's national. I mean, I obviously I put, wouldn't put my hand yeah. over my heart because I'm not a citizen of that country. Didn't grow up there, but yeah, I'll stand, and I think people should stand. And if people, if somebody doesn't stand, I absolutely believe it should be their right not to stand in a public forum. Obviously, mm -hmm. private. You know, if we're going to the NFL region, that's not as that's not really public, so yeah. they can be fired technically. Yeah. Um, but if somebody uh, doesn't stand, then our initial reaction shouldn't be, "Oh, you're an asshole." Yeah. It should be, "Well, why are you not standing?" Yeah. And so then I go, "Okay, well, tell me why you're not standing." And then if I don't, then I can. Now we have another issue. Am I going to agree or disagree? And then if I think, "Well, that's a dumb reason not to stand," like I don't like that message, yeah. then it should be about that message. Yeah. I think what got lost in the NFL thing with Kaepernick was that he didn't, well, initially he sat, and I think it could have been for selfish reasons. I don't know. I didn't follow the story that closely. And then he decided to kneel because a veteran told him kneeling is better than mm -hmm. sitting. And then people got mad because he was kneeling. And my message was, well, let's not worry about so much that he's kneeling or standing. Let's listen to the message and then decide. And so I listened to the message and I was like, okay, I get the emotion, but I don't agree with the policy or your view of the world. I don't think that that's the problem that you think it is. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, you're right. We've got caught up so much in are you standing or are you kneeling mm -hmm. and are you a patriot or are you not? And it's a total sideshow and it's frustrating. So Well, and now it's like, you know, the last... The last weekend, you know, we got the the update uh, uh, every game. It's like, you know, this team decided to stay in the locker room for the national. Anthem. I know, and this is, it's like this is not helpful. No, and you know, one of the things about freedom freedom is uncomfortable. You know, in a free society, you are not free from being uh, uncomfortable, and I think that's one thing. Kind of going back to what uh, Justice Brandeis says, and that I fear we're losing as a society is allowing enough space where, hey, we're confronted with things that we don't agree with and and maybe it makes me uncomfortable or maybe I disagree with it, uh, but I can allow that person to live and exist and speak their mind and things like that. Like, I don't have to silence them. Yeah. And I feel that space uh, uh, where we allow those viewpoints that we don't agree with is shrinking. Yeah. Well, I think that, that we need to be able to distinguish that. And I, I feel like most people can't and it's disturbing. Like I can disagree with somebody and not like what they're doing and vehemently oppose them and do things, whether it's not patronize their business or maybe I can 
go on social media and say this person's a jerk and here's why I think this. That's all private activity that I think is perfectly legitimate. Um, but then we need to be able to compartmentalize that private activity with the laws. Mm -hmm. Once you start passing laws, now we're into a different, we're into a different realm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that many people can compartmentalize those two. I wish they could. Mm -hmm. If we can, the country would be so much better. Because mm -hmm. um, like, then I can just say, hey, yo, I, I don't like what you're doing. And then we can just keep it at that. And I'm not um, you know, passing laws. I'm not, you know, we're not getting the cops involved. We're not getting courts involved. We're not... You know, that has a whole bunch of other second and third order consequences mm -hmm. that can really ruin things. So, I don't know. But any, anything else on that? It's it's just it's just I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the next couple of years. Maybe in five or ten years we might get through this, but I think the next few are going to be tough. Well, yeah, I, I think that it's you know whoever whoever wins the presidency, I, I just think we're in for a rocky road uh, yeah. for the the next you know four to you know, eight years, uh, because we are, we are right now a very divided nation. Um, you know, it's, it's really sort of a 50-50 split. So elections are going to be yeah. close. Uh, you know, there's not going to be these clear winners. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's helpful if, if the only way your, your side can lose is because somebody did something nefarious. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you lose. Yeah. Sometimes you may think you've got the better argument that's going to carry the day, and that doesn't happen. It doesn't mean the system's corrupt. Yeah, well, I was telling my parents that. I think they, they were leaning one direction politically. I don't want to give that away, but I just said, you know, no matter who wins, we still have these institutions mm -hmm. that will slow down whatever you're, fear, you're, whatever you're fearful of. Mm -hmm. So, you, yes, you do have a presidency, which you want to go a certain direction, but... If that doesn't happen, you still have a Senate, you still have a Congress, you still have a Constitution, you still have a lot of roadblocks that are in the way. Um, not to say that it won't be painful if the person you don't want is in office. There might be a big law or two that are passed that you don't like. Um, but I don't see the world coming to an end. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. Well, do well, this is sort of off the wall, but the one yeah. thing the, the last several years has really made me appreciate is George Washington. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, when you think about it, this guy, you know, takes these words off this paper, and much of what we have today, of what we expect and what we believe the president and the presidency is, is because of how this man mm -hmm. envisioned what this role is and then how he conducted himself for four years. And you think about that has set the stage for the last 200 years. And now you kind of see where people, I, I, I think because uh, President Trump is such a, a different character, has a different view of that, that you, you realize is like, wow, the institutions that we kind of grown up really are, are, are based off of how somebody conducts themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, maybe that's why people on the left are fearful. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not as much because I just know the history and the tradition and the legal obstacles. Um, so, um, yeah, but yeah, George Washington, I think the fact that he could have been a king and chose not to 
um, I think that was a extraordinarily impressive thing to do, especially in that time when the majority of the world was kings, well, monarchs, and, and yeah. And then to either have the amount of to to command the amount of respect that the the next several presidents, who were all founding fathers, mm-hmm. who were all alphas, who all had you know twenty pound brains on their heads that were mm-hmm. great deferred to sort of the path he set and followed it and where yeah. you do kind of build up these what we view as sort of the the institutions of the the presidency yeah so where do you think um we, we got a few more minutes here but where do you think um it's going to go in the fall which what do you think's going to win what do you what do you think will happen after that i i honestly uh i i don't know um i i i feel that I think a lot of the underreporting that happened in 2016 is still happening. So I think the polls are a lot closer than uh, the pollsters are, yeah. you know, the numbers are out there through no fault of their own. I mean, there, there are just people who either won't answer the questions or are probably answering differently. So I think it's going to be a very close election. I think it's uh, going to be even closer than last time. I, I would say that where I'm sitting right now, it seems like it's Biden's to lose. But again, I think as long as those the, the rioting continues in, in cities across America, uh, I think it's going to give a lot of voters pause. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really think more so than previous elections, I think the debates are really going to matter. Uh, this is the first time we're actually going to uh, see these guys against one another. Um, it's hard to believe the, the presidential candidates, they're both in their 70s. Uh, they're kind of attacking each other's mental acuity. And, and, and <laughs> it's I kind mean, of funny to watch it, that. Well, it is. And yeah. so here, here that's, and that's what people are going to be tuning in for. Yeah, just you know? to measure them up. Absolutely. Is, yeah. is, is, is Biden all there? Can Trump uh, do what he says he can do? So I, I do think that the, the debates are going to be very important this year. When when's the next debate? I haven't even uh, watched it. A week from this coming Tuesday. So is I it believe be it's the twenty via Zoom or are they going to stand on the stage like ten feet apart? Uh, I have no idea okay. how they're going to do it, uh, but it's going to you know be broadcast. I'm sure there's going to be social distancing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the polls and it's uh, man, yeah, I'd say it will be Biden, but it has been tightening. Um, you know, I don't know what to think. What would happen after that? Like if if Trump does get reelected. Man, I don't know. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, more rioting, a lot more problems happen. Um, I think that I just see a continuation and a worsening of what's happening now. And again, I'm not going to sit here and blame all that on Trump either. I think a lot of people have been just been reacting. Like I, I'll come out and say I, I'm not sure sometimes who to hate more, Trump or the people who are opposing him. Like I'm just kind of watching this shit show. And I'll see him say something dumb. I'm like, okay, that was stupid. But then I'll go watch the reaction to it. I'm like, well, that's freaking dumb too. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of slowly just backing away watching all this. Like, that's how I feel. Um, so there's that. But, you know, if Biden gets... So if he does get reelected, I don't see a whole lot of movement with any policy. I think it'll just be another couple of years of a crap show. And then, and then the last two years, Republicans will eventually kind of abandon him for... Mm-hmm. Whoever's going to take his place. Um, I don't see Trump changing his personality at all. Uh, <laughs> no. I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> He's that, that, was, uh, that was one of the things, that, you know, during the, during the 2016 campaign. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, 
oh, now that he's got the nomination, he'll tack towards the center. He's going to change. You know, the office will change. Uh, no. him. I, you know, the, the, the one thing that I remember, because I watched both of the conventions this year, the, the, the one true statement, and I believe it was Ivanka Trump that said this during the Republican uh, convention, is like, uh, uh, Washington didn't change Trump. Trump has changed Washington. You know, I can't say that's good or bad, I, but it is a true statement. I think that, it's true. That he, he has not bended to what Washington is. So No, no. I mean, not, not at all. Not at all. I, so the other scenario, if Biden gets gets elected, um, you know, it really depends. I think Biden at his heart is probably a pretty moderate guy. I think he just kind of does whatever the political mm -hmm. scenario is. I don't think he has much of an ideology. Um, I, I'm not so much uh, nervous about Biden coming as, as a person who's a little more right-leaning. Um, I, I am concerned about having an, a completely democratic government, mm -hmm. which could happen. I think the House is leaning democratic. I think the Senate. The Senate is very close, and that could be mm -hmm. democratic as well. But I guess we have a filibuster, so I think you'll see a lot of Republican filibustering. So you'd have to get what sixty votes to pass anything. Is that am I getting that right? Is it two thirds? Uh, it's sixty. Sixty. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you'll see a lot of Republican filibustering out of the Senate. And mm -hmm. I think it'll just be the first couple of years to be like, why are the Republicans not allowing him to do anything? Uh, unless well, they do away with, with the filibuster, which is one of the they things do that, that like taught, just yeah. for everything? It's a rule. It's a rule. So they could just do away with all they filibuster. Could. They could. And, wow. they've, and they've been eroding it. Yeah, I know so. that. Yeah. I, wow, so what could happen? That, that's the part that I'm like a little nervous about is if you get completely Democratic control without any filibuster. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be every, and I think people will realize, okay, glad Trump's out of office. We don't have to worry about the tweeting or the bad behavior anymore. The media will probably be more aligned with, with Biden because they tend to lean left, just usually, at least the major media outlets do. So things will seem at peace on the surface, but then you'll start getting some policies that come down. You're like, okay, I didn't sign up for that. Then you get another one, then another one. And you'll realize that you have no speed bump in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think, so I, think? while we were in law school, I spent a semester, uh, I spent the spring semester of 2009 uh, in Washington, D.C., clerking for Senator Kyle. And that was back when uh, the Republic, or excuse me, the Democrats had the presidency, the House, and the Senate, and then they got the supermajority because Arlen Specter, uh, you know, flipped over and became a Democrat. And you know, they, they should have been able to run everything they wanted through Congress. Um, they weren't able to do that. Uh, and because you, you, you do start getting pressures that, that happen within the caucus themselves. And when you look back at it, that was when the Tea Party movement happened. So you, you had, when the de Democrats had all the levers of power, what happened is out in the hinterlands in the states, you had this huge tsunami that uh, washed a lot of them out of power in the, the in 2010. Yeah. So even though groups can get all the levers of power and think that they have free reign, you know that's one of the unique things about our country is hey there there is a countervailing force out there, and it can be substantial. Yeah, every, well, every two years you have an election. Yep. So that is true. If you can't get it done in that first two years, which you could do some damage in those two years, but realize you could get a sway back in the other direction. Well, and the rea reality is, from the political cycle, you really only have that first year to get things done. 
Okay, because they spend the other year Because preparing. once you get into the election year, yeah. then it's you switch into campaign mode, yeah. and you got to be looking like... So, you know, maybe it's a flaw in the system, and maybe it's actually sort of a, a feature of the system that if you're going to do something big, you have to get it done in that first year after the election, because yeah. if you can't, people, the elected officials immediately turn to their re-election. Well, they talk about the first 100 days, and yep. that's probably the reason, is that... Yeah, if you can't get it done then, then it ain't happening. Yep. Yeah, well, th- you know, that I think that gives me some hope then if, if things don't go well. Because, again, I'm, I'm more, again, I like, I don't like Trump's personality. I don't think that he, uh, well, I think he's entertaining. I think he's funny. But I don't like him as a presidential personality. But I'm kind of like okay on the, a lot of the policies. I'm, I'm like, I, to be honest, if he didn't have the personality he did, I probably would be voting for him or doing more. I don't know. But... And then Biden, I think that he behaves not okay, I guess. I don't know. I haven't followed him that much. but And I'm not too concerned about him, his ideology personally, but I am concerned about the far left. I'm not going to lie. Like, some of the stuff coming out of the far left, I'm like, that's pretty awful. So, but then I feel better knowing that, hey, if it is something bad, two years later, we got another election coming. Things could totally sway back the other direction. Two years after that, you can get a whole new president. Mm-hmm. And who knows what will happen. I mean, four years ago, we didn't even think President Trump would be here. And now, look. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that you kind of touched on what Biden's what Biden has to do between now and the election is prove to people that he's really going to be in charge. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, what do you think? Like Kamala is, I, I mean. She well, might... he's, definitely people are going to be jockeying because you, yeah. just, you just have to look at the actuarial tables and all that and be like, he's probably going to be just a one-term president. Yeah. I mean, he's 78 now. Yeah. You know, so, but the question is, in that four years, are, are you going to be the one calling the shots? Are you going to be the, are you going to stand up to that left are they yeah. going to be your cabinet secretaries that you pick? Are they are they going to be executing on your vision, or yeah. what's going on there? So that's that's the hurdle I think that uh, uh, Vice President Biden has to do over the last forty six days we've got. But in reality, probably the next 15, 20 days because early voting begins. I mean, I it's already begun in yeah. Virginia, Arizona. We'll be getting our ballots soon. Yeah, I mean, us too. Um, God, I mean, Arizona, we'll bring it back to the beginning, though. Arizona's moving left now, and it's, man, what do you, how, how I haven't been paying much attention, but um, what's it like? Is it a temporary thing because people just don't, aren't that into McSally, or what's the, what's the state like now? I mean, what's... I, I, I think Arizona is, it's, it's very unique. It, it is pretty independent and libertarian. So, Kirsten Cinema yeah. uh, won the last election. Uh, I served with uh, Senator Cinema when she was in the ha- state House of Representatives, and I was there. Um, and she, even from the time that I knew her, she has moderated herself over the years, and she has actually uh, rankled the Democrats since she's become a senator because she has been quite independent and quite centrist. Mm-hmm. So I think this state, we may flip-flop, at least in the near term, between uh, uh, you know Republicans and senators, but we still are a moderate state. We're kind of in the middle. Yeah. You know, we still kind of have that cowboy ethos or that independent, yeah. like, you know. 
don't fucking tell me what yeah, to do, yeah. whether it's you, one way or the other. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're going to get involved, make sure it works. So yeah. I would even say the same thing with uh, uh, Senator McSally. I mean, she when she was a congresswoman, she was in the most competitive congressional district in the state. I mean, she, she threaded that like a needle. And, uh, you know, she had to tack right when she was uh, running for the Senate the first time uh, against uh, uh, Senator Sinema but ultimately kind of comes back to the middle. So we, we've, we've got a pretty center delegation yeah. uh, for the most part. We, we do have a, a couple representatives that are way out on the right or way out on the left, but for the most part, we're, yeah. uh, we're, we'll be probably purple for... Yeah, I wonder if some of that's because the Californians are moving out there. Is there... Well, Because my state is just... You know, this is one of the things I've thought about a lot too yeah. is... We are so mobile now. Yeah. We are so mobile now. And we are also confronted with uh, the baby boomers retiring. There, there already has been and there will continue to be a real reshuffling and realignment of the population centers in this country. Um, Arizona's growing. Texas is growing. Uh, the Sun Belt states are growing. And... You know, a lot of them might not like how they're growing. We're, we're getting a lot of retirees from Chicago, from California. I mean, just the cost of living in Arizona versus the cost of living in California. And then you take into consideration uh, what COVID has done in terms of, I think, proving to a lot of corporations and a lot of businesses, my people can work from anywhere in this country or this world. Why am I spending precious resources on commercial real estate in these very populated and expensive cities. Mm -hmm. I can save so much money. I think we are going to see a real mm -hmm. uh, upheaval in terms of where people are, are yeah. moving and living. And that that is going to shuffle the deck. Yeah, I think that, well, it's true. It's sort of like a, a perfect storm. You have a lot of boomers retiring and then you've got COVID forcing realignments mm -hmm. economically and therefore politically around the country. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think you're going to see some red states go purple, maybe even blue. I don't know what happened with the pure blue states. I, I kind of think they'll probably just stay that way for a while. Like California. <laughs> they'll, they'll be blue and they'll be dark blue. They'll probably get darker blue, but they will have fewer and fewer uh, representatives going to Congress. That's true. That's true. You'll see fewer representation out of, out of states like California. I mean, I, I, I love a lot about California, um, the culture and just the, the weather, obviously the geography, but yeah, the politics and the economics are just so frustrating. You know, it's, it's so many people in one area and I, it, it's just amazing. I, it, uh, you're like 40 million people. Yeah. That, that is incredible. Yeah. It's the size of, it's like the size of Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, probably the, double Canada. I think Canada is around. Yeah, I don't know. Population-wise, I think they're pretty sim pretty similar, but yeah, I mean, economically, I, I don't know which one's bigger, but um, but yeah, it's just it's a big place. It's crowded. Um, I don't think it's managed very well. So I I think people are going to continue to move out. Like people people can move out of state pretty easily. They don't move out of country. So mm -hmm. I feel like the national politics are not the same dynamic as the mm -hmm. state level politics. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm there for now. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I'm, but I, I'm, I'm always looking around. But it, the but, way the economy's going in terms of you know yeah. uh, information technology, where I, I, I mean, if you are a programmer for Google, and you can do your job anywhere, 
why would you try to live in the Bay Area? It's terrible. San Francisco's awful. I like going out there for a vacation or for a night or two, but... Well, you could never really afford a house. No. And you got people crapping on the street outside your $2 million one-bedroom condo. Like, it's... We have some of that in L.A., too. I mean, my God, you have, like, $2 million houses, $3 million houses, and you've got a homeless encampment right outside there. And, yeah, like, now I feel like the national media attention's on Trump and his behavior, but, you know, you're looking at very blue places... Mm -hmm that have these problems and I don't think it's a coincidence and if you get certain laws or policies that um, that are now implemented at the national level I don't know I, I don't think it's a far stretch to say you might see some of the same problems occur at the national mm -hmm. level I don't, I don't. well and I you know what one of the concerns that I have in terms of just you know this this 24 7 uh, fascination or whatever you want to call it in terms of what's happening in Twitter, what, what's happening right here. I, I am concerned. Are we, as a nation, are we keeping our focus on the things that really matter, you know, internationally? Are we, are we paying attention to what China's doing over, you know, with respect to Taiwan? What about the Middle East? What about, you know, I mean, there are these things where we are just so bombarded with all the stuff that's happening here at home that I, I, you know, you hope that we're also paying attention to the things that are going on yeah. internationally, but I'm concerned that we're, we're distracted. Oh, I'm totally concerned. I think that everything's been focused on this one man's personality and every little dumb tweet that he sends out, um, the, the reactions I don't think have been good. And it's distracting us from very important things. Like you said, China's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. It's a huge problem. You have a, a country that's four times our population that's growing rapidly military is expanding and their neighbors don't really like it mm -hmm. um, you know there's there's trouble brewing out there and just because you get a guy that's no longer in the office and you don't you know he's gone okay good now you can go rest on your laurels but then maybe the guy that replaces him may not have very good policies either and like with the Middle East I haven't looked at it in detail but apparently there were some good peace agreements that were signed that's very positive and so some of that could then go away if the new guy gets in there. Um, so I don't know. I think I wish people would look more at policy and ideas and not so much on the personalities. But I, th I seem to be in a minority on that. Every political discussion I get into goes right into the person's, the guy's personality and what he said and can you believe that. And there's just not um, – as much discussion over ideas and things that will actually impact people's lives. Well, I think this kind of shows you the, the, the power that the media has. Yeah. Uh, and it almost kind of goes back to the social media. I mean, they're, they, they are filtering, they're setting the agenda of what we're going to consume at home. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're focused a lot on the intramural stuff right now, but the, the question is, are we watching? Are they elevating to our attention the things outside of uh, this presidential election uh, that we need to be paying attention to as a nation. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of power that the media has. And they do. They do. And I'm, um, I, that's, I think I'm glad, I'm glad that we have a lot of independent sources now. I tend to follow a lot of, a lot of diverse sources. And you can, get them out, you can get them if you would like. I think it's very important for people to follow a diverse range of ideologies. I don't like how people will just X off certain media sources and say, well, that's far right or that's far left. 
you should be listening to those, not because they are right or wrong, but because it's a point of view that you might not have thought of before. And I really recommend following ones all along the political spectrum. If you're, if you're, it doesn't matter who you are. Like I, again, I, I lean right on quite a lot of things, but I follow the Democratic Socialists of America. I follow um, the Root, which is a, a Black Issues website. I follow Economic Policy Institute, which is like a workers semi-socialist. And I don't like a lot of what they post, but at least I'm seeing that point of view. Mm -hmm. And so, I, um, you know, if you're lean left, like you, you have to follow Fox News. You have to follow Reason or Cato. These are libertarian types of um, sites. And again, you might not like them, but at least see what they are concerned about because mm -hmm. you might not have thought about it. And you, once in a while, you might see something that you, you agree with. It could happen. I mean, so, but I will warn you, if you do follow a lot of these sites, you might get angry. And then it could make things worse. So feel free to, or worse, so you feel free to unfollow once in a while. But I think the idea that you can depend on one media source is just naive. Don't just follow the New York Times. Don't just follow Fox News. You've yeah. got to get a smattering. Well, and I, I think if you get if you feel that discomfort that we were talking about earlier, then you're probably doing things the right way. Yeah. Uh, you are challenging your strongly held beliefs. Uh, you are taking an information that's kind of pushing you to, to really kind of examine why, why, why do I feel this way? Um, is, is this information just blatantly false or is it making me think in a different way? And you almost need that vector check to make sure. I mean, the worst thing you can do, and I, and I, you know, if if the feed in your Facebook or your Twitter is things that you all agree with, there's a problem. The algorithm has worked uh, against you, and now you're only seeing you're in an echo chamber at that point. Yeah. Uh, and you are putting stuff out there, and you are just getting, you know. That's true, and you can you can produce your own echo chamber. I mean, I've I have a few friends on. Facebook and they are post so much on one side and it's like every day, you know, can you believe this happened? It's usually something angry because that's how we are now. And they'll have like 10 or 20 or 30 people that like them and say, oh, you, you go girl or guy or whatever. And that's fantastic. And they get this constant positive feedback, but probably what they don't see in the background is all the people that are unfollowing and unfriending mm -hmm. and going away and they're getting no countervailing information and I'll see posts by, and I'll just follow out of curiosity, and I'll see posts, I'm like, that is just not true, mm -hmm. or you're completely mischaracterizing your opposition, so you're fighting a straw man, you've built up a straw man in your mind, and these are smart people, mm -hmm. and I just, I, I don't, again, I part of the reason I started this podcast, because I wanted to be able to break through that and be able to talk to people, and I think it's a much better way to communicate, but um, yeah, I think the next few years are just going to be tough. <laughs> if well, smart people are having these problems, a whole lot of average and dumb people are having even more problems. Well, and I, I, I think it's a, we've kind of drifted away from talking to one another. Uh, you know, we, we, we do a lot of our communicating through text messages, through emails, through uh, social media, and people say things on there they would never say when they're face to face with somebody. And you know, I think that's that is a, a, another part of the problem. It's like we we need to communicate with one another, because hey, we're a little bit more polite when we do that, and I think we're actually more willing to hear out the other person. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. Like, um, yeah, like even a couple nights ago, I was uh, listening to some people talk, 
and they were um, sarcastically blaming things on uh, Obama. Like these people were leaning left leaners, and so they're saying, "Oh, it's, it must be Obama's fault." So they're sort of making fun of the right by saying it was Obama's fault. And it's funny the way they were speaking, but they were using the exact same arguments and the exact same emotion as people on the right would say. Like people would sarcastically say, "Oh, it must be Trump's fault." You know, this is the orange man bad syndrome, and and so it's like people are just in two different worlds, and um, you gotta you gotta break out of that, and you gotta take it upon yourself just to change how you do it. Um, you know, ch try to change yourself, and you don't have to change your opinions, but I think you need to expose yourself to a lot of stuff, and then you might see things, you might see things change, so I don't know. But um, anyway, anything else? What, uh, what's, what's, what's in the future for you? So you're now, I don't know if you want to talk about what you've been doing recently, but um, you can. What, well, I, so, uh, you know, currently I serve as the uh, director of the Arizona Department of Gaming, which is the uh, state agency uh, that co-regulates uh, tribal gaming in the state of Arizona, and then we also oversee uh, uh, horse racing in the state as well as boxing and mixed martial arts. So, uh, I want to go to an MMA fight, man. you got to get me tickets. Oh, well, we got to get MMA right. happening again. All right. Well, so I, I think they, uh, they've gone ahead and uh, bought an island somewhere where they're, they're creating a bubble where they're going to have their fights for the foreseeable future, but yeah. hopefully we'll have that. It, it's very interesting. I, I think... You know, working with the, the tribes, you get a smattering of federal Indian law and then, you know, really what governs gaming in this state uh, with the, the tribes as well as in California and any other state that has it is the compacts that the state and the tribes negotiate. We're in the, we're in the process of negotiating a new compact. So, you know, there could be some changes here uh, in Arizona. Uh, you know, every, I think you're seeing the sports betting. That's the big thing that's mm -hmm. kind of sweeping the nation right now. So that's an issue that we're uh, uh, dealing with. And uh, so there could be some changes in the near term. But I'm really enjoying this right now. And, uh, you know, uh, Governor Ducey is in his second term. And uh, his term ends in uh, January of 2023. So we'll see what. Okay. So I got a couple of years to kind of see what, what comes next. Sweet, sweet. You plan on getting back into politics, or you gonna? Come on. I don't know. Come uh, on, man, I'll help you out. You know the <laughs> the environment that we're talking about right now is really tough. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I the people in there, whether I agree with them or not, I know that they have a very difficult uh, life. Yeah. It can't be easy to be in the political realm right now yeah. because there is so much anger right now, yeah. uh, and they're often. You know, you immediately, once you get elected, uh, have 50% of the people that just think you are evil. And that, that's not an easy thing to deal with. So we'll see. But regardless of what happens with this next election, you know, you and I, we lived through the last closely, uh, or the cl last close election. Uh, you know, I, I entered the Air Force uh, where the election of 2000 was undecided. And yeah, that still, was like 500 votes in Florida decided that one. You know, I, I entered OTS. And the Supreme Court, yeah. Yeah, the end of November, and I can remember we're probably like two weeks into training, and yeah. on the deck, whoever the officer was that day, just like, uh, you know, attention on the floor. George W. Bush will be the next president of the United States. That is all. And yeah. We made it through that. We'll make it through whatever this is in terms yeah. of like, you know, the legal wrangling and all that. And, you know, what's amazing is we do move forward. We, we, we can get back together and, and move forward. Yeah. Even after those closely uh, decided elections. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have some, I have hope for the long term. Um, 
you know, I think it'll be rocky in the near term. Um, but like I said, the way to do it is to talk face to face, um, get to know the person that you are uh, talking to, get to know the reasons behind their feelings and their positions. And then I think you can move forward. And I think um, people taking it upon themselves to expose themselves to as much counter information as you can. I think it's important if you have a feeling or a position, you need to challenge it like a scientist, like a scientist would. You need to have a hypothesis and you need to challenge it with evidence. And if it doesn't stand up to that evidence, then you need to kind of modify how you look at things. So I don't know. I think um, I think I think we'll get through it. I have as much I have I have some hope, but I'm an optimist. I know we will. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. there there wasn't a, a dull administration, despite my optimism. But I, I know that as a country, we're going to you survived something. despite <laughs> there being no president dole. Oh my God. Anyway, well, Ted, vote man. Thank you so much um, for coming by. Um, we'll have to do it again. This one, yeah. like, this freaking two hours flew by. Hey, so I think you anytime. might be you might be my standby guy. Hey, we, we so. haven't even scratched the surface yet. I know, folks. We can we went through like what one half glass of whiskey, and we have like a whole bottle we could go through, which could make this show go on forever. So, um, anyway, all right, bud. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Um, see you on the the next one that we have. Good to see you. All right, buddy. Take care. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Greg Crino Show. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And you can email me at gregcarinoshow at gmail.com. Please remember to like and subscribe and tell your friends. All right, folks, take care. See you next time.